Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So you think... Welcome to the Atheist Experience. We are live. Today is Sunday, August 18th, 2019, uh, unless it's not. But uh, we are one month away from the ACA's annual bat cruise, and while everything isn't finalized, I can say that there was some work done on the website. So if you had gone on and tried to buy your tickets for the bat cruise already and encountered an error related to registration or a web, I think we've got that sorted. And there's a, uh, if you go to atheist-community.org up on the main page, there's a link there to the bat cruise, which will take you right to the, the internal shop. And it's worth noting that the bat cruise is like the first of the, the events there. And there's a picture of, of like the back cruise. And then there's an add to cart button. If you only need one ticket, go ahead and click add to cart. And, and if you decide later you want more, you can go over to the cart and manipulate it. But if you need several tickets, click on the actual picture and then you can pick out, you know, the number there. Uh, and then you'll have to fill in your name and contact information and stuff so that we know who bought a ticket because that would be nice. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, and you will not be mailed a ticket. You'll, you'll we'll just check you off yeah. as you come come in the boat. You just you just arrive, show up. We'll have a checklist, and um, yeah, I think we're probably right at half sold at this moment. So I and have we're my we're one month. Out. I got my ticket yesterday while I was testing the website. Uh, but yeah, we're we're a month out from that. Also, a special note of thanks to uh, Joe Pangrak, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly uh, for a donation that's going to make sure everybody here at the building gets ice cream tonight. Oh. So uh, yeah. Yeah, we do the show. Or we used to do the show years ago at the Public Access Theater in, in here in Austin, and we were on local public access TV. Now it's internet only, and we do it from the Atheist Community of Austin's Free Thought Library, 1507 West Canning Lane. Any atheist or atheist-friendly person's welcome to come down here. The building's open seven days a week, pretty much from 11 to 9. There's always something going on. I know there's philosophy club meetups on Wednesdays where we're recording uh, tons of shows. There's secular sexuality and atheist vanguard and talk heathen and atheist experience and, and just, well, pretty much almost one for every coffee mug in this shot right now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there, there are a couple extra Four, coffee mugs. Million. Yeah, and it's weird because <laughs> my my named bottle of Coke Zero is on your side, 
And oh, and, and yours is on my side. Oh that my. way we could be closer together Aww. without having to slide into the, <laughs> to the middle in front of the screen. Uh, yeah, how are you doing? I'm all right. I had some great barbecue today, so I'm ready for a nap. I don't think I announced <laughs> you at all. I, I'm Matt, uh, in case you didn't know that. This is Don Baker. Hey, good to be here. You had great barbecue where? Uh, at a neighbor's house. Uh, a neighbor throws a, uh, they call brisket off, which is a competition of sorts. And there's tons and tons of good food, and it's a, and... So basically, you're just bragging. Yeah. It's not like, you know, hey, here's a cool restaurant you guys can go to. I had barbecue that none of you can <laughs> ever right. get. Yeah. Good I, job. I made some great beans. Awesome. Okay. Uh, yeah. So in addition to the back cruise coming up, there's a, a bunch of other stuff on on my schedule, which is uh, f- fairly hectic. I have a debate uh, Tuesday night. Uh, it's online, so it's not anything you can go to, but you can tune in. I'll be debating uh, Jay Dyer. Um, on the existence of God, and I think he's going to be presenting some kind of transcendental argument or whatever. It'll be posted eventually on the Atheist Debates Project once it's done. We tried to do this a week or so ago and ran into technical difficulties, but we're hoping to do that again. Next Sunday, uh, and actually, Mark, did we make a decision about shifting showtime? Uh, you can answer in a minute. But next Sunday is special because... Uh, Andrew Seidel from Freedom from Religion Foundation is coming down, giving a talk, talking about his book. He's going to be guesting on on several of the shows. But I also have a debate here in Austin at the AT&T Amphitheater Conference Center thing on campus at 6 p.m. And so for those of you who are aware, this show runs from 4.30 to sometime after 6 is when we stop. So either I'm not going to do the show next week and I'll be over prepping and doing the debate or there's a chance that we will air Atheist Experience uh, early, like directly after Talk Heathen, and, and get that done. I don't think we completely made up our mind on that. So stay tuned and be ready to call in even earlier uh, if that's the case. But yeah, this debate is um, its something I—so I work with the Bible and Beer Consortium and have done a bunch of debates with their Ezra, the—I don't, I don't know what his official title is, president, executive, HMFIC, whatever. Uh, he, he's a friend of mine and I've done a number of debates with them normally in Dallas and they're branching out to, uh, include Austin. And this will be the first major Bible and beer consortium debate. And, uh, the debate topic is how do you resolve the conflict between religious liberties and LGBT rights? Now, for clarity, and I will say this again when the debate actually happens, we are not debating rights or what rights people have. This is about how do you, you've got this group of people who think that they get to be bigots because of their religious beliefs, and this group of people who are like, yeah, uh, your religious liberties uh, lose every time when it comes to what my actual rights are. This is, it gets down to separation of church and state and a bunch of other stuff. So this isn't going to be a debate about whether or not somebody's a person or whether or not they have rights or anything else. It's from my view, it's going to be an education about church-state separation and um, trying to let people know that, uh, you know, if your religion is against X, okay, you don't have to do it. But that doesn't mean you get, have any right to dictate to what anybody else yeah, sure, could be. Sure. But I'm looking forward to some interesting discussion about that. And that debate, too, will be up uh, on my Atheist Debates thing. And the last thing is I, I'm going to Dragon Con, which is the end of the month, Labor Day weekend. I think it's Labor Day weekend. Um and I'll be doing uh, Magic and Skepticism, a couple panels. I'm working with uh, Kurt Anderson, Jamie and Swiss, and uh, most of the people on the Skeptics track. So if you're in the Atlanta area or if you're going to Dragon Con, um, I know there's going to be like 90,000 people there. But if you happen to see like a bald head from the back and you suspect that it's me, don't touch that person. <laughs> And then when you find out it is me, then you can <laughs> hug me, shake away. my hand, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want people getting assaulted because, oh, I thought you were Matt. No. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's 
pretty much everything that's going on. We'll, we'll have more information about the back crews, and we'll make some decisions about what's going on with next week's shows, and we'll get them publicized as well. How are you? I'm all right. You just got back from vacation I I took a almost two weeks in uh, in Europe. Wow. And it was awesome, except I had my wallet stolen. Oh, no. <laughs> that's no fun. Got pickpocketed. So now you got to get like new license, new credit cards. And yeah, you know. that, that was all. That's that's a minor thing relative to not having not having money uh, right. when you're abroad. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I had to call a friend, and a friend helped me out. So we're good. Cool. <laughs> I, I'm guessing that you, as a topic for today, might have something that we would refer to as a failure. Yeah, another failure. Um, oh. You know, I had talked about miracles before, and and uh, there's been a lot of calls about miracles lately mm-hmm. and uh we actually had a uh, last time I was on I had a call from a guy who was promoting some sort of um probabilistic argument for the resurrection uh, uh and uh, ultimately he was referring to a paper that was about miracles and uh he he sent that to me and so part of part of today's topic is kind of a refutation of at least part of that paper there's it's one of those fractally wrong things it's sort of like wrong everywhere um but but this is certainly something that is uh, separable from the paper itself. And cool. th- this is uh, show number 65, if you're keeping track. Uh, some people— It's failure number 65. Failure number 65. It's show, show number, number 10 million. 24th, <laughs> 23rd season yeah, and something a while, or other. Right? Yeah. Okay. So some people believe that miracles are evidence of God, and I want to explain why that's not the case today. And some people— think that multiple miracles are even more convincing evidence of God, and they're not. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the gist of the show. Um, a miracle might be defined as a specific event that would not have happened if only the natural order had been operating. This is from that paper, by the way, and that's, uh, you know, a, a reasonable working definition. But these things are truly rare um, and truly unexplained and truly not reproducible. You know, can I jump in? <laughs> yes, please do. So that operating definition, go through it one more time. A miracle might be defined as a specific event that would not have happened if only the natural order had been operating. Sure. So what caught me is that you said these things are rare. Now, I would say they're so rare that they're non-existent because is there ever a demonstration that the national natural order wasn't working? The fact that something happens that you don't understand doesn't mean the natural order was not working. That, that's right. In fact, one of my lines here is I know that I know no case where the natural laws have been. How would you subverted. even prove that? Well, I, I know of none. Right. So no, but I mean, I, how I, would they prove it? How would they prove? It? Oh, hey, here's a case where the natural order wasn't working. Yeah. Okay. Cool. If you know of a case where the natural order wasn't working. That would fit this. Please call in and tell us not only what it was, but how you know that the natural order wasn't working. But what is really going on here is that what what we're getting are stories about events, right? And the list and the listener has no way of knowing what actually happened, and and the listener being us, and so we and there's sort of an implied argument from ignorance here that if you can't explain this miracle, God must have done it. Yep. There, there, that that seems to be the kind of the way things work, and unfortunately, the same reasoning—I'll put that in scare quotes—works with the invisible pink unicorns and uh, magic farting sky pixies or whatever you know crazy thing you want to have is responsible for this. So I have a better definition, which uh, I think is—I encourage folks to you know kick kick the tires and see if it's any good. Uh, it's an unconfirmed or unconfirmable story 
about a mysterious event that is used to market God. See, now that, that though, so you've gone kind of, this is me just being pedantic. Okay. Okay. But that can't be the definition of a miracle. That can't, the, your, your new definition can't be a miracle is a story about something. Okay. But because the story is not the miracle. It's, a matter of fact, stories about things that people think are miraculous are anything but miraculous. They're mundane. They happen right, all the time. Right, right, So Okay. Well, you got me there. Uh, um, maybe. But uh, this definition fits a wide variety of religious claim miracles, uh, and I invite the audience to send me counterexamples. I want to explore this definition a little bit today. Yeah, calling about something that's a miracle that is not just a story that you don't have an explanation for, but some evidence for something and how you determined that sure, it was miraculous sure, and not just unknown. that would be a one way to do it. Unknown or misunderstood. Yeah, but uh, we're going we're gonna to hit some different angles here. Um, cool. Let's see. And as you said, the miracles abound, right? And so one of the key issues here is unconfirmed. And something that is truly unconfirmable is not evidence of anything. It's just a mystery. And, and at worst, it's a con. So it's, it's really sort of uh, uh, something that's unexplained and, and doesn't, doesn't act as an explanation for God, doesn't provide evidence for anything. And um, there is also the category of confirmable but unconfirmed, meaning that with some investigation, you could find out more. And uh, in some cases, the information is intentionally hidden by people who are doing the marketing. And uh, in some cases, it's just because the people listening to the story are lazy and they don't, they don't go and explore it. So unconfirmed can be a lot of different things here. And let me, let's come up with a couple examples. So hidden information or laziness examples. Well, Mary in the Bible was a virgin due to a mistranslation that became ossified dogma. I'm pretty sure she was a virgin because that's the way she was born, except that virginity is a social yeah. construct that's absolute bullshit. So, uh, but go ahead. Well, she, uh, the original story was she was a young woman who bore a child and, and it, and because of a copying error, she became a virgin who, who, uh, bore a child and the religious dogma ossified around this. And, and this is sort of a well known problem. Except, sorry. What? So I'm just going to keep interrupting you all. Please day. do. <laughs> I, I'm not convinced it's a copying error. I, I, matter of fact, I, I think claiming that it is is a bit problematic because where we mostly get that is in the book of Matthew. And Matthew is desperate to have Jesus fulfill as many prophetic things as he can dream up or imagine. Mm -hmm. And so you've got the passage in Isaiah where there's a, a possible translation error where something that was originally um, young woman was translated as virgin. And then, oh, is that, the, is that the copy error that you're talking about that Matthew then kind of lifted to, yeah, yeah. to do virgin? Absolutely. Ah, okay. I thought you were talking about a copy error. I'm not, it could be a copy error. At least we can't show that it's not. Okay. Sorry. Okay, but how much more likely is it a copy error versus an actual miraculous virgin birth? Well, that's the problem because, <laughs> no, 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 because this is why I asked this. If the, if the copy error is in Isaiah, then the real question is, how, how likely is it that it's a copy error, error versus Isaiah was speaking about a virgin? Because Isaiah doesn't speak about a virgin birth in, in right. that sense. So, right. so this is, you're, you're kind of conflating what happens okay. in Isaiah and Matthew. Okay. But okay, I got some more. I'm just trying to stem off the the the, the first-year Bible college students who oh, are like, this okay. is, whoa, hang on a minute, could be this here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right, though. When it comes down to, is it more likely that somebody made something up, there was a translation error, there was an attempt to fulfill prophecy, or an actual virgin woman gave birth to a divine child? Uh, yeah, we know which one of those is more likely. Right. Okay. 
I happen to be a little bit of an expert on the Guadalupe and Juan Diego mythology, um, armchair expert. How about that? And uh, we know for a fact that the uh, Juan Diego's cloak was was a painting. It was done around 1550, and it was based on Spanish imagery that that came over from from Spain. And uh, I've done some research on that. And the cloak is a basis for a big money making scheme today. In the eighteen in eighteen eighty eight, the cloak was repainted. And there was a miracle. It was a miracle that mm-hmm. the cloak hadn't degraded <laughs> since the original. Imagine that. Okay, you have a you you replace one painting with another painting, and the new painting is undegraded. Isn't that a miracle? It's another miracle <laughs> that they removed the crown off of her head between the two. <laughs> so wait, there was so, one so, painting, and somebody made a new painting, and the new painting is different, and they're claiming that it hasn't that it didn't degrade. Okay. Well, I'm missing. I'm I'm not giving you the whole story. The whole story. Ah. The, the 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 original miracle claim was that Juan Diego wore this cloak and gathered up roses that had bloomed in December when they weren't supposed to bloom, and gathered them up and showed them to a bishop. And as he rev- as he dropped the roses, this this image appeared on his cloak. That's that's the that's the mythology around it. But but it but it's really a painting. And there, and there probably wasn't even a Juan Diego, okay? This cloak was made of uh, a cactus fiber that was supposed to have de- decayed over the, over the century. But it, but it hasn't decayed, and, and, and it's claimed to be a miracle that it hasn't decayed. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Um, and then it was also a miracle that the crown disappeared from this cloak, the crown on Mary's head. Wouldn't that be decay? No. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> but I'm bummed. Solved it. <laughs> Next on okay. Unsolved Mysteries. Okay, so, so the gist of it is, is, is that this, this whole Juan Diego thing is, a, is, is a pretty much a scam and uh, pretty much a you know, money-making um, mechanism for the Catholic Church. And, and, uh, and it's, it's full of holes as far as all their miracle claims. There's even a miracle claim that some ophthalmologist looked at, looked at the eyes of the image— Okay, ophthalmologist, eyes of the image. Okay. <laughs> yes, you should be scratching your head by now. And found that that the the image that he saw in those eyes was of the bishop that supposedly as if it were like a photograph. Anyway, it's it's truly truly hilarious. Um No wait. <laughs> so there's a painting that has eyes. Painting that has eyes, and an ophthalmologist looked at it, yes, and determined that those were the eyes of somebody else. No, that that the eyes themselves had a reflection in them of what of this miraculous event of the cloak being revealed to uh, of Juan Diego, effectively. So, looking, so basically, the ophthalmologist had watched so much CSI where it was like zoom in no, and no, enhance he, this he, sector. He was and, Catholic, but <laughs> he, he, he saw there was an image reflected in the eyes, according to him, right. So he's in his brain doing the isolate sector one and zoom in and enhance yes. thing. That, yeah, yes, okay. yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, that's it's, bullshit, it's by the way. Like but, yeah. yeah, okay. And when you zoom enough, you get you get a lot of white noise. Yeah, <laughs> and it looks a lot like a miraculous vision. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, another a Catholic miracle was uh, Mother Teresa. The her she's now a saint and. Uh, as part of that process, uh, there were s- some miracles associated with her. And the first miracle was that a woman with tuberculosis was treated for tuberculosis by her doctors. Meanwhile, she prayed for her cu- a cure to her cancer. 
and which she did not have, and later was cancer free. <laughs> so when I was a kid, like <laughs> it's on, a miracle on, on late She's Friday night, uh, there was there was that old joke of you know the guy standing around with a banana in his ear, and he's like, "Oh, why, why are you standing there with a banana in your ear?" And he's like, "It keeps the elephants away." And there's no elephants around here. See, it's working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I I prayed for a cure to the cancer that I didn't have, and I don't have cancer. Okay. Woo. Right. All right. I'm going to skip one here. Uh, so, uh, if a typical miracle is just partially a partially hidden fraud, what does that say about the rest of the miracles? And what does it say about the people promoting them? And uh, the the answer is it's marketing. And the marketing thing is kind of interesting. Uh, in every single one of these miracle stories I've heard has been about marketing God of some sort or marketing the religion. And um, in the following examples, notice that unverifiable things don't that don't have a marketing angle are not ver are not miracles. So the next group of things will be things that are unverified. They don't have a marketing angle, and so they're they're not considered miracles. Okay. Um, from the Bible, Lot impregnates both of his daughters despite a- allegedly being too drunk to to notice they were bouncing on him. And I would say that's a miracle. <laughs> It comes close. The natural order of thing, you know, yeah. The male anatomy just doesn't work that way. If you if you're if you got somebody bouncing on you, evidently <laughs> they hadn't heard of whiskey dick yet. <laughs> right, whiskey dick. That's that's right. Uh, lightning hitting churches, but less frequently brothels. That's not that's not a miracle. <laughs> well, <laughs> for some reason, to be fair, there there are probably more churches than brothels. Yeah, and and, and churches are built on higher higher ground and these sorts of things. Um, uh, UFO sightings, not miracles. Uh, let's see. Child molesting Catholic priests have rarely gone to jail for their crimes. Not a miracle. <laughs> there's, there's one that's, uh, that, that hit me because I was in the Bosnia and Croatia area. Um, there's a, a shrine there called Medjurorki, Medjurorki. And it's interesting in that, uh, there's, there's a couple of people who were kids back in the, 60s and 70s, and who are now in their 50s, or my age, and they regularly get uh, Marian apparitions, supposedly. And these people are still doing that, and it's a big, it's a big Catholic thing. And what's interesting is that the Catholic Church is kind of hemming and hawing about whether this is this is a miracle or not. And I think it's because they're not making money from it yet. <laughs> They're kind of iffy on this, and so and but and, you know, on the, alternatively, if they could find a way to make money from it, I think it would be declared. A that's miracle. right. That's right. You know, J. C. <laughs> Everhart and I d- debated a couple of people who were Mariologists, and they were you know experts. Oh yeah, it's in interesting Mary. stuff. I don't know if they got visions or not, but okay, but they were okay. experts in Mary. By the way, I, I have a, a slight correction. I, I misspoke a minute ago when I was talking about um, Isaiah and and Matthew. So first of all, the it's Matthew and Luke that talk about Mary being a virgin. And when I said Isaiah doesn't really talk about a virgin giving birth, what I was trying to say is the passage there under most reasonable interpretations talks about a young woman giving birth to a son and his name shall be Emmanuel, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, isn't Jesus. Right. Yeah. So, that, so there's another little little uh, wart on that whole thing too. Yeah. Uh, one more thing on this uh, this uh, group of group of people who are uh, claiming Marian visions, they actually get messages from Mary, and all of the messages are drivel. Here's one: little children, pray, pray, pray. That's the whole message. That's the whole message from Mary. <laughs> Mary, Mary, why you bugging? Yeah, right. Okay. 
Uh, we've talked about miracles. What about multiple miracles? Well, if there's a financial incentive to promulgate a miracle, there's going to be fin- more financial incentive to promulgate multiple miracles. And uh, so more miracles are just more marketing. And because a miracle is not evidence of anything, multiple miracles are not evidence of anything either. Um, the, the quote is, the plural of anecdote is not data. The other thing to remember is that we're not talking about multiple miracles. We're talking about multiple claims about miracles. Yep. 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 So, yeah, definitely don't, don't buy it. You know, check out the claims first. And, and even without a financial set of miracles or memes, which have their own reasons and mechanisms for promulgation. So think of X-Files playing into alien abduction stories, right? Um, and, and what the little green men look like. Or gray men? Gray. Gray, yeah. Got to fix that. Um, I'll send them to you. So miracles are okay, are wholly unconvincing to atheists. They should be unconvincing to everybody. Uh, everybody, anybody trying to sell you something based on miracles clearly lacks anything more substantial, and they're working a con. And this is, and Christianity certainly relies heavily on miracles, and that's, that's a failure of Christianity. Amen. Amen. Let's take calls. Cool. Anybody you want to, in particular you want to start with? Uh, I haven't thought that far advanced. All right. Uh, well, we're going to start with Michael in Florida. Thanks for waiting. You're on with Don and Matt. Hi. Hey. Yeah, I was just calling because uh, I'm not a believer in God, but I believe that we have a soul or some kind of, you could call it just a subconscious, but there's something there that helps us. It's curious because I think Don and I would both agree that we have a, a part of our mind that is correctly labeled as a subconscious. And neither of us would agree that we have anything that would be correctly labeled a soul. So are you referring to something that sort of lives beyond our physical bodies? Yes. Okay. I don't, I don't know of any evidence for that. Do you? Well, uh, personally, whenever I was a kid, uh, so I was probably still in training tanks. And my brother, he was five years older. He took the mattress off the bed in the bedroom we were playing. He put it under the bed and he made a little tiny gap between it and the wall. He was trying to fit in there. He couldn't fit. And as little as I was, I knew that I could fit in that little hole. <laughs> so when I crawled in that hole, all of a sudden, he grabs a hold of the bed and kicked with his legs and shoved the mattress into me, into the wall, as hard as he could. I was probably two, three at the oldest. Uh, all of a sudden, him, the mattress, the bed, me, we all flew backwards away from the wall. So that, to me, is not just a subconscious. That's something else. I, I don't understand what you're saying about what happened. So you crawled between a mattress and a wall, and your brother tried to squish you between the mattress and the wall, and yeah. and then what happened? And I was almost dead. I can remember blacking out. I couldn't breathe. It was like the old constrictor. Every time I took a breath, I couldn't inhale less. Okay, so, you know so you're, you're being squished and this lack of yeah. oxygen begins to deprive your brain of oxygen and you start to pass out. What the hell's that got to do with the soul? Because what, what made the whole mattress, my brother and me, the whole bed, everything flew away from the wall. What did that? A two, three-year-old kid or something else? I, I have no idea, but first of all, I don't believe that that happened. Okay. I believe that you're convinced that it happened, but you're talking about how old are you now? I'm 58. 58? Yeah. Yeah, so you're talking about a 56-year-old memory that you've massaged over the years. Why on earth would you think it's it's accurate? Hell, I don't remember anything from when I was two or three, but I can tell you things that happened to me when I was 16, which I know I'm wrong about. Well, I understand that. A lot of times people are wrong, mistaken, sure. Stories change over the years. But this is something that happened that I'm never going to forget. Why would I change a story to myself? 
Because we all do that. We, we all do that. We, we know that memory is faulty, and I'm not saying that you're intentionally changing the story. I'm not accusing you of, of deception, intentional deception. It's just what we do. But, you oh. know, I, first of all, we have no way of investigating this or testing it or whatever else. And all I have is a really right. vague description of uh, the bed and everything flew away from the wall. Well, for all I know— yeah. Your parent came in and yanked the bed away in order to rescue you, and you were unconscious. And then you're, you know, they drug your brother out to uh, him punish him or whatever else, and <laughs> laid you on the bed. And then your brain—it reminds me of near-death experiences that, that people claim to have. Because what actually happens? It wasn't that okay? Congratulations, Doctor uh, Michael. Uh, I'm glad you've I'm determined not, it I'm wasn't a near-death experience. I didn't almost die. I almost passed out more like what you said the first time. Now, hang on, because I bet if we rewind this call, I'm the one that said you almost passed out, and you said you almost died. I bet if we rewind the call, that's exactly what was said. I almost passed out. I said it's more like that. I almost passed out. I don't think I almost died. I think I was going to die if I hadn't kept up. And my mother came in afterwards because she didn't know what happened. I don't know what made a noise. I don't know. You're right. but Maybe your brother pulled the bed away from the wall. Here's another theory. You were, no. you were afraid, and you had a burst of adrenaline, and you, you pushed it. Exactly, but I don't think that a two-year-old kid usually does stuff like that. Usually they die. That's yeah, the first time. Two-year-old kids don't, aren't usually being squished to death. So, of course, we're under exactly. an exceptional— But here, what the hell does any of that have to do with a soul? Because what you really have is a, is a memory of an event that may or may not be accurate and something that happened that you don't have an explanation for. How did you get to a soul from that? Because that's just the first one. I'll give you two more examples. That was I, the, I, the, no, I don't, Michael, I don't need any... need a plural of the anecdote. I don't need 10 examples that have nothing to do with the soul. I want, to, I want an explanation of how this got you to the, the notion of a soul. Because I'm just saying that there's something there that keeps us alive, keeps us going, even when we're unable to comprehend the whole world around us. And yet people die every second. Keeps us going. Right, sometimes it happens, yeah. But the majority of times, most people have an instinct for survival. Something that keeps them going. Even yeah, when yes. Kidding, I agree. We have an instinct for survival. What the hell does that have to do with the soul? Because, like I said, if you let me finish, there's another time when I was... In I don't life. need an... Oh. Here's the thing, Michael. This is what you're not getting. I agree with you. We have an instinct for, for survival. That's, called, that's what our brain does. If there's nothing about the first story that necessitates a soul, then let's admit that that first story is not in any way evidence for a soul. Okay, you don't, you don't get to add up to 10 things. You don't get to add up 10 things that don't aren't evidence for the soul independently and claim that the 10 of them together are evidence for a soul. That's not the way evidence works. I'm just saying I'm going to give you one from the beginning, from the middle, and, and recently. And if you don't want to hear them, that's fine. But the other two are not the same story. Yeah, give us your Maybe very best you. one. Okay, the and then tell one. me why you didn't start it's with the best one. I'm just saying I started at the beginning where, when I was, I was a kid. Okay, but that's where Michael... Starts. Are we at least in agreement that there's no evidence for a soul in that first story? In the first story, sure. But then, put them all three together, and then maybe you'll see it. No, 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 no. I just explained this. If I have one story that's not evidence for soul, and then I present a second story that's not evidence for soul, and a third story for ev- that's not evidence for soul, I haven't come up with a, a combination of stories that's evidence for a fucking soul. That's not the way this We're works. Not listening. You're not listening to the other stories to know if they have anything to do with the soul. And like I said, why didn't you? If you, if I, I tell you what, if I ask you what evidence do you have for a soul, and you tell me a story that has nothing to do with a soul, why the fuck would I listen to another story from you? Because I'm saying the soul is the same as a subconscious, a guardian spirit, a soul, whatever you want to call it. Those things aren't the same. Those just pretending. 
Okay, congratulations. We, we, we all have a subconscious. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so what would tell me when I was, whenever well, I was... I, uh, instead of telling stories, why don't, why, why don't you say why you think that there's something supernatural here or something that, that goes beyond our death? Because I'm trying to tell you, but you keep refusing to listen to the other story. Well, you should that's not, with it. That's not an answer, sir. <laughs> when Don, when Don asks you a question and you say, I'm trying to tell you, but you won't let me, now all you're done is doing is pouting. Answer the question. <laughs> pouting because if you don't want, what's the question? If you don't want to hear What the story, evidence you do you have for a soul? It's like I said, to me, you can consider your subconscious as a soul. It does more than just... Okay. Sorry. When, uh, we need to have... We, we're going to do a special episode of the show where we talk about what the fuck evidence is. Yeah, we need, a sh we need to do that. Because when I ask for evidence and you say, well, we can view the subconscious as a soul, I no longer give a shit. Because, you know what, I can view this, can this bottle of Coke Zero as God. I can view this phone as peanut butter. I'd be wrong, but I can do it. That, that's not evidence. Telling me that you're convinced that the subconscious is a soul is not evidence of anything other than you believe this. And the thing we're trying to get to is, why do you believe it? Why do you think that this is true? And why should anybody else believe it? If, if somebody had called up and, and said, oh, I've got evidence for a soul, and then they, when asked for evidence of the soul, said, well, you could look at the soul as if it's just your self-conscious, your subconscious, sorry. Uh, no. That's not, that's not evidence. Why would you call in and say you have evidence for something or, you know, that you have a reasoned belief for something and then just say, oh, because basically what you're saying there is I like the notion of a soul. I don't actually have any evidence of a soul or anything that's going to exist beyond us. And so I'm going to look around at the things that I don't have an explanation for, like consciousness and subconscious and weird circumstances where you might be passed out and something strange happens. And so you're taking all of these things that you don't have an explanation for and saying, you know, I could look at that and say it's a soul. Well, congratulations. Yeah. You can do that with anything. That doesn't get us to evidence, and it doesn't, it's not how you go about showing this. Well, a lot of the real. soul stuff seems to be wishful thinking, right? Of I'm gonna I'm gonna see my relatives, you know, when I when I die and they're they're still with me, these sorts of things. The, the idea of a soul is comforting, but it's yeah. wishful thinking. Uh, all, all evidence that we have is that when your when your brain dies, you die and there's nothing no more to it. Yeah, I'm, I've pointed out, I don't know, a gazillion times now that the soul is the single most dead concept in all of theology because of what we know about the brain. We don't know everything about the brain, but it's like if I'm rolling a die mm -hmm. and it's a standard six-sided die, half of what you would roll at a craps table, and it comes up a four, you know, four, we roll it, boom, it's four. And somebody says, why did that dice roll come up a four? And your answer is, ah, I have a guardian angel who, when I roll the dice, makes sure that it lands on four when, it, when I need it to land on four. <laughs> You've come up with an unfalsifiable proposition that might be comforting. Uh, it's the same thing we do with lucky socks and rabbit's feet. It's, it's about confirmation bias and stuff like that. And so if we pick up that die and we roll it again, and it comes up a two, what? You, oh, my guardian angel didn't make it come up before because we didn't need it to come up before then. That's right. That's, that's what's going on. <laughs> And so when we look at the soul, there's no, in a die roll, there's no room left to reasonably posit external influence. We know about physics. We know about die roll. We can measure this. We know that the odds on a standard six-sided die is that one out of six times it's going to land on this specific number. We can roll them and roll them and roll them and roll them and simulate it and everything else. And they fall into this normative distribution for fair dice. Mm -hmm. that's, that's just what happens. So there's no room left in a die roll to say, ah, 
An angel made it land that way. There's no room left in the things that we identify or used to label as the soul. Given what we know about the brain and how it functions, about how our memories are malleable, our personalities are malleable, your, everything about you can be reset. You can get amnesia. You can you're, fundamentally change. Yep. Uh, you can sever the corpus callosum and wind up with two distinct, independently communicating personalities within a single head. There's no room left to posit a soul. Because one view of the soul is that it's the ghost in the machine. I have a spirit mm -hmm. that is basically guiding and directing this meat sack around the planet and it's making decisions and it is the thing that is going to be judged morally as good or bad or whatever. Right. The problem is, take that split brain example, which I've used before. If two personalities in the same brain, they communicate independently. One of them believes in a God, one of them doesn't. Now, does that mean that once upon a time, this brain had a soul and now the soul is completely moved over to one hemisphere and the other hemisphere is just screwed? Uh, does it mean that uh, each of those have half of a soul? Um, None of this actually makes any sense at all. But the bigger issue is that every time you posit some space for a soul, every new discovery that we find about how the brain works closes another door for the soul. And God's not there to open a window. I know they say that when, you know, <laughs> some, when a door closes, somewhere God opens a window, you, you don't get to posit that. It's the same thing we did with evolution when we talk about this, uh, diversity of life where we have common ancestry and then it branches out mm -hmm. like a tree. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, but that's where God intervened. Yeah. God God flipped this little DNA switch to to make humans distinct no, he, from the other he, great apes. He kills, he kills and messes with the sex lives of animals. Yeah. That's the main way you would do that. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, I get it. Okay, you don't believe in God, but you do believe in a soul. If somebody asks you why you believe in something and you tell a story and they say, I don't see what that has to do with the thing you're talking about. It's, it's not never going to be good to go on to another story. Yeah. If people are looking for evidence. Oh, here's something that happened to me. Cause first of all, I do not believe that what you are describing actually accurately represents what happened. I will believe that it accurately represents what you remember, what is in your mind. It's like when somebody tells me they were abducted by aliens. Do I believe they were abducted by aliens? No. Am I willing to accept that they are convinced they were? Yeah. There, there seem to be plenty of people. Uh, who are otherwise uh, rational, and for whatever reason, they've interpreted certain experience as this was an alien abduct. And I'm gr fine, you can tell me your story, and when an alien abductee or, or claimed alien abductee tells me their story, I'm going to say, how does that prove that it was alien? How does that prove it was alien? Sure. Because that's what skepticism is, asking those questions that most people are too uncomfortable to ask because we're so terrified of not knowing. And some of us are so terrified, or some people are so terrified of uh, not fitting in with everybody else. You know, I don't share your God belief, uh, but I'm spiritual but not religious, or I yeah. think there's a soul. You know, don't don't crucify me you, the way you will those guys on the atheist show who are telling you, you know, oh, no, 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 you don't have evidence and everything else. I'm kind of on your side. I'm just not, you know, all the way there. It's cowardice. And I don't mean that in the sense that, that it's a character flaw for the individual that you're a terrible person. We are all guilty of it almost all the time. And the goal, as far as I can tell, should be when you're made aware of this to work to change it. Where are we going next? Oh, my goodness. Let's take a theist. Yeah, there's five. Five. Or four and four and a half. We'll go with uh, Raphael in Florida. You're on with Donna Matt. Oh, man. How's it going, guys? Hey. Mixed bag. How are you? Yeah, so um, I'm doing all right. Uh, the main question I wanted to ask is, um, let's say you have two beings, uh, let's say a, a pedophile priest uh, who hurts, spends his life hurting children and uh, atheist who's 
as a doctor spends his life helping children, uh, what do you use to determine which being is more moral than the other? I don't. So there's about 12 things to correct there real quick. First of all, um, and this is just a pedantic point, we probably should say pederast priest because that's about the act. Uh, pedophile, while it's been used as a pejorative forever, really just describes someone who is sexually attracted or aroused by children. And that's independent from what they do. And that's not a choice or decision they made any more than they chose to like chocolate ice cream over vanilla. Those people are in need of help, but there are plenty of people who have those attractions who never act on them. So that's just a linguistic thing of I'd rather point to pederast priest. I don't look at individuals and sum up their character as a whole and say, oh, Don is more moral than Matt. I look at events and determine whether or not th those events were moral or not. And so the atheist who's helping people uh, could also be doing a thousand other things that are, you know, much, much worse than, or, or at least in the same ballpark that we know about. So you can't summarize the whole of somebody's character by an individual act. And I know that's troubling for a lot of people, as is the comment about pedophiles, but it's just the way it is. I'm not, I'm not defending, you know, rape is rape and it's disgusting and awful always. Uh, yes, we look at it as more horrific when it's, you know, done with children. I, there's no way to excuse. It's an inexcusable thing. And those people need to be held accountable for it. That's independent from what they're attracted. Just like if somebody was attracted, there's, there's objectophiles who are attracted to mailboxes. Uh, they didn't choose to be attracted to a mailbox. And as long as they're not molesting my mailbox, uh, good for them. <laughs> But yeah, sure. I, I find it difficult to sum up the whole of somebody's character to say this is a good person or this is a bad person. But I recognize that colloquially what we tend to do is there are some things that are so horrific that we look at it and just say this is a bad person. And I'm, fi I'm fine with that. I just don't tend to do it. I tend to talk more about what they've done as bad. Um, not, not even because I'm convinced that everybody's capable of redemption. But let's, but let's get to the larger question sure. of, of how would we judge a moral yeah, I mean, I guess you could say it was a maybe an error on my part in the way of asking the question, but I guess I could reframe the question uh, towards, you know, maybe their intent and uh, their action. We could maybe say which action is better than the other. Well, helping people is better than raping people. That one's pretty easy. What, one promotes well-being and the other does not. Um, all right, so that that was um, another point that I wanted again to get to. I watched your video on morality and... Um, I agree with a lot of things. I disagree with some other things. One of the main disagreements I had was about um, how you're talking about morality is based on well-being, but you don't really go much further than that. I guess the thing that I would argue is that well-being isn't just an action. Is or well-being isn't an an, an action. Is no well-being is like is the goal. state that you're comparing things to. And it's not completely understood, and we don't fully understand well-being, but we understand enough. So the fact that we don't have all the answers doesn't mean we don't have answers. Like, would you agree with me that feeding someone who's hungry is better than raping someone? Of course, of yeah. course. And we don't have to go to, oh, the, the reason for that isn't because a God says so or anything else. It's about which one promotes well-being and which one detracts from it. Now, then you can have more complicated questions of, is it better for me to keep giving someone free sandwiches or to teach them how to be self-sufficient. Well, that's a little harder to figure out which one of those might be better than the other. But I would say that both of them are still on the good side of, of the line. And so pointing out things where we may not necessarily be able to say, this is morally right, because I think there are some things that are essentially amoral, where there's no more, like, it's not immoral for me to like, like chocolate ice cream. Agreed. Uh, unless liking chocolate ice cream 
encourages me to buy more chocolate ice cream, which fundamentally affects my health, which affects the rest of my life, which can have moral consequences for the people around me. And if the ice cream that I'm buying, this particular chocolate ice cream that I like, is being... Uh, the ingredients for this are being uh, immorally produced, and you've got child labor and all this other <laughs> stuff. You could go down to my liking of you could you could do that. You could say, "Oh, you like chocolate ice cream, therefore you're a shitty person because it it has all of these other consequences." And it may even be the case that if I'm aware of those consequences, now it does become something where I'm immoral. But but that doesn't mean that we're stuck where we can't decide anything. I agree. Um, so would you agree uh, that the action of somebody caring about the well-being of someone else, uh, would you agree that that could be called baby love? Yeah, you, you could. It, it would fit. Love, love is defined in so many different ways. You could love, compassion, empathy. Empathy is probably where I tend to go. Um, uh, would, would you agree that uh, God in a general sense has to do with uh, power and authority? I don't know what, which God. Which God are we talking about? Well, I mean, uh, we, don't, we don't know of any gods. As far as the Abrahamic religions and their usages of the word God, uh, as far as I understand, there's two main usages. There's, you know, lowercase g and capital G. Um, lowercase seems to me to be geared more towards the <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to laugh. Word. You know, mankind has invented, you know, tens of thousands of gods. The uppercase G is is uh, is used for a Christian god, and it's kind of like naming your dog, dog, I think. Um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> but but what what is it you're asking about? Well, just that God, in a general sense, uh, has to do with power and authority. Like you don't call something a God if it's not if you don't see it as a power or authority. Gener no, 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 no. There there could be a like if let's say the Abrahamic God was was real. Um, yeah, I would agree that 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 God is described as powerful, and I would agree that there are people who think that God has authority. I don't recognize any authority over me. What about the deistic God who, who you know, may, may have created the universe and, you know, went off and for a fishing trip or something? But, but also power and authority aren't morality. I'm sorry, what was that last question? Pa power and authority, even if we said, okay, yes, the Christian God is portrayed as powerful and, uh, and portrayed as an authority. Um, that's not what morality is. No, uh, but well, uh, so basically the point I'm trying to get at is that... Um, God, in, as far as I understand, and you can correct me, in, um, in a general sense, in the Abrahamic religion in the Bible, um, is used like to maybe refer to something that people worship or revere or value. Um, and okay, in morality the is based on well-being um, because love is an authority on how we should behave. No. So I guess the argument that no. I was going to get to with that no. is that because no. of that, God is love. Yeah, no, that's absolute garbage from start to finish. And, and I can kind of explain why. So the fact, you're kind of like making an argument from analogy that, well, morality is a little like this. And that comes, that, that is derived from these characteristics like love. And God is a little bit like that. So now God is, is somehow tied to morality. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that the Abrahamic God, uh, we have no evidence that it exists, but even if it does exist and we go through what's written about him, what's spoken about him, um, it's a it's a jealous God, a vengeful God, a loving God. He's a fucking uh, monster. Yeah, he, he's a monster <laughs> at times. Yes, he has power. Yes, he has authority. He's not in any way about equality or fairness or justice or the things that we actually value because we now understand that those things directly contribute to the well-being of humans. Uh, that matter of fact, there's no evidence that this God cares at all about the well-being of, hum of humans. That the laws and instructions that he gives, uh, there's no evidence that those are about how to have a better life. Don't wear polycotton blends. Don't eat shellfish. Uh, you know, don't pick up sticks on the Sabbath. 
Um, okay, wait, wait, there's one here that says don't murder. Hey, that leads to well-being, therefore he got it right. Well, if I make a list of 100 things and you point to 20 of them in that list of 100 things and say those are good things, therefore you're the authority on morality, when those things are mind-numbingly easy, I didn't ever need a God to explain to me why I shouldn't kill people. Yeah. And I don't need a God to exist in order to have a rational justification for not killing people. I'd rather not be dead. Don would rather not be dead. Our continued existence is directly in the interest of our well-being and possibly in the well-being of society. Yeah, uh, hey, let's not kill each other. Hey, <laughs> it's really easy. Thou shalt not steal. How does that come about? Well, I have stuff. I'd like to have my stuff. I'd like to be able to keep my stuff. You'd like to keep your stuff. And so we, now we understand that the world is fundamentally better with us having some protections around our life and our stuff. Because if we got rid of those protections, then you could just walk in my house and take anything of mine that you wanted and there would be no recourse for that. I couldn't even say, you know, setting aside the law, I couldn't even say that was wrong of you. Except that we recognize that this is fundamentally doing harm to people. That's, that's all, all we need. Well, why would we need more than that? And, it, and, and while you want to phrase it as, as like love, first of all, I'm not convinced the Abrahamic God has anything to do with love. And considering a lot of the conversations that I've had uh, with Christians, including when I was and even myself when I was a Christian, I think they have a, a very, very, very perverted view of what love is. Well, I mean, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, uh, I think. Love is patient, love is kind. Yeah, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, doesn't boast. It's God proud, so loved his earth. child that Do, he killed him. Doesn't envy, doesn't <laughs> boast, and yet this God that is supposed to, is supposed to be the the uh, the perfect thing, uh, uh, a perfect representation of love, is envious and boasts. As a matter of fact, the whole uh, Moses Jealous. performing the, the the plagues is God showing off, because what happens is, uh, Moses comes up and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, ah, screw you. And then Moses does something terrible. And, and Pharaoh, or Pharaoh said, screw you. And then Pharaoh's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll let him go. And then what happens? God steps in and hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let him go because he's not done fucking showing off yet. So much for that free will thing. Where, 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 is the, where is the love from the Abrahamic God ever? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ah, well, okay. Uh, so first, we could murder somebody. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I am the supreme loving ruler of the universe, and I make all the rules. And I'd like to forgive you, but I can't. So I'm going to I'm going to come down and take human form, and and have myself killed temporarily, give up a part of a weekend, and then I get to continue being God to act as a loophole for rules that I created. That's not love. That's performance art. Whenever whenever, <laughs> whenever my parents whenever my parents wanted to you know needed to forgive me, they loved me and they forgave me. I didn't have to do anything. They certainly didn't have to kill my little brother. <laughs> now go back all the way, all the way to the beginning to the ridiculous Genesis story. God creates two people, plants them down here, and says, "Don't eat these two trees, but you can do, you know, pretty much whatever you want to do with everything else." Now, what kind of idiot doesn't understand that as soon as you put two essentially children in a room and say, "Those are the two things you can't touch," they're going to go touch this? Well, of course. You know, there's not a modern theologian that doesn't think God didn't know what was going to happen. Of course God knew what was going to happen. And when God comes down to the garden and is walking around going, Hey, Adam, hey, Eve, where are you? Why are you hiding? Oh, we're naked, Lord. Well, who told you you were naked? And this is God, from the Christian perspective, looking like a caring parent who's like playing hide-and-go-seek with a kid that's behind the chair and they don't have object permanence yet. So they, they think that if they can't see you, that you can't see them. And so God knows all this is going to happen. And God knows what's going on. He knows they're naked. He knows why they're naked. He knows exactly what happened and everything else. And yet he's walking along. And then all of a sudden it's like, 
boom, well, I told you, don't eat of that. Now you're going to, you know, I told you on the day you'd eat it, you'd surely die, except that he doesn't actually do that. And through the whole story, the only one that told the truth in the entire story was the serpent. Now, that's, there's no love coming from anybody in that story. When he, when he decides to flood the entire planet because he is screwed up, he's made people, and they're just not doing what he wants them to do, well, I need to reset. What kind of God wouldn't have known that was coming? Why would you need to push a re Like, if I create a Sims game, and they don't understand me, that's my fault. And if, and if I create a Sims game, and the Sims start doing shit I don't like, uh, I'm, I'm imperfect. That will catch me by surprise. But why would I ever create a Sims game knowing that they were not going to do what I liked, and that I was going to have to destroy all of them but eight people, a drunk and his sons, and re reset humanity after that. And then when that doesn't work, then instead of trying to save everybody, I'm going to pick out one group of people and say, you are my chosen people. Let's go out and kill all of the other people. None of this. This is, this, this is what I talk about when, when I say that Christianity, Judaism, uh, Islam, all of them have a perverted sense of what love is if they're trying to point to God as love. Well, I mean, they have plenty of verses that <laughs> state distinctly what love is or we're, we're, or we're not interested in rescuing the bible for another person so i don't understand how i mean i if i, I if i say if i say if i say to you Raphael, i love you and i do yeah. something nice for you like i take you out to lunch and then i beat the yeah. shit out of you and i lie about you and i spread rumors about you and all these other things and you come to me and you say you, you don't actually love me what good would it do for me to say hey i bought you a sandwich you don't get to point to the things that aren't bad as a way of excusing the things that are yeah, but I mean, at the same time, you're judging God's perspective from a subjective perspective, and I think that's kind I, of like what other what other fails, what other perspective? <laughs> what other perspective could I possibly judge anything or anyone from other than my own? Yeah, but that's not what I meant by that. What I was trying to get at was you you don't not have children just because they might make some mistakes. Yes, that's exactly why I don't have children. How do you know? <laughs> well, I'm saying it is it, it is a perfectly. Like, you can have children. See, I love the way you phrase this. And accept the fact that they're going to make mistakes. Yeah, it's, yes, it's but not. if you created the children flawed and you are the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe and you intentionally chose to create flawed children and then decided to punish them for those flaws, you're a prick. I mean, how do you know he didn't give us free will? Well, because first of all, we don't have free will in that context. Uh, but second of all, what difference does it make? If God created you with free will, knowing that it could go wrong, and then punishes you for exercising the free will he gave you, he's still a prick. How? Love, by definition, allows for free will. Yes, but love, by definition, doesn't include punishing people for exercising that free will. Why is this so difficult for you to understand? Actually, love, by definition, does punish people who act against love. Really? That's what love does? That's what I'm talking about when I talk about a perverted sense of love. Yes, you can love someone and want to uh, correct bad behavior, but you can do it in a loving way and not by creating a torture chamber in the basement where you're going to send somebody forever. I mean, that's not gen generally the way I understand the Bible. The way I've understood it was God sends signs, God sends messages and gives people chances to turn their life around. And then when they don't, God has to be just. Why? I because thought, God is love, and love takes care of its own. I thought God was merciful, and, and love was mercy. Love is mercy, but what well, do you not? No, 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 no. You can't have it. You can't have it both ways, Raphael. Justice means you get what you deserve, and mercy means you are exempted from getting what you deserve. You can't have both. Those are two sides of the same coin. No, they're not. Justice means you get what you deserve. Mercy is a suspension of justice. You deserve to go to hell, but God is going to be merciful and take you to heaven. That's mercy, and that's something that's designed from love. So you don't get to say that sending me to hell and sin is just and sending you to heaven is mercy, and that 
they're both an exercise of justice because you got something you didn't deserve. And so did I, I mean, by the way. All of this, in a sense, kind of begs the question anyways, that you could replace the, the pederast uh, priest with, with God, and you could say God is immoral, but the reason God I do. would be immoral mm -hmm. in the first place I is do. because you would define him as not loving, but that, that, it's, it's a whole loop again. It, it goes back to what I'm saying about morality being based on love. Yes, it's a loop because you're in a circular argument that begins with God is loving and just when you don't even have evidence that there is a God and all of the evidence about that God flies in the face of the claim that that God would be loving and just. So you're saying love doesn't exist? Wow. No. <laughs> You know, I tell you what, I'm going to let you go now, Raphael, and then when this clip comes up, I want you to go back and listen to it, and, and I want you to email tv at atheist-community.org with whatever sentence or word combination you think I uttered that made me claim, made you think that I claimed that love doesn't exist, because what you're doing right now is, is, is what you're doing right now, what you're, shut the fuck up, what you're doing right now is avoiding addressing the actual issue and making accusations against me that aren't true. I didn't say love doesn't exist. It doesn't, but I hadn't said that yet. Well, no, I was asking a question. I was asking for clarification. Yeah, questions don't begin with, so you're saying love doesn't exist. That's called a straw man framing, and trying to play it up as a question now means you need to go listen to that and write us. Okay. <laughs> Good day, sunshine. We didn't even get on the subject of slavery. <laughs> I'm trying not to do that every week. <laughs> okay. It's just too easy. It's just too easy. <laughs> yeah. It's it's funny because when it, th this, actually the real problem was when we talked about, you know, he, he wanted us to be able to sum up the entirety of somebody's character. And I said, I don't really do that. I don't sum up e even fictional characters like the God of the Bible. I don't sum up his entire character as if he's good or bad. There are things that are attributed to that God, which I would say are good and loving. And there are things that aren't. But when you try to simplify it to God is love, love is what morality is about, therefore God is about, is about morality. When all when you're pointing to the Bible, or the, the God of the Christian Bible, the only evidence we have is of that fictional character. And that fictional character is a mess. Yeah, he's a dick. <laughs> oh, I'm going to love you, but not you. And I'm only going to love you as long as you're doing what I say you're going to do. Oh, he beats me because he loves me. He punishes me because he's just. Well, where's the demonstration that what he's doing is just? How is infinite punishment for finite crimes right. just? Let's, let's make a deal with the devil and, and, and shit all over Job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Go, go ahead. Destroy Job's life because, you know, this life is like dirty rags. The, the entirety of Christianity turns everything we know about human experience and life into a place, as you pointed out years ago, as a place to wipe your feet before you get onto the real life. Right, right. That's just bizarre. If the real life is what happens after we're dead, and God already knows who's going to the good place and who's not. Why bother? Why didn't we start there? Why do we need a dress rehearsal? Oh, well, you needed to live it so you'd understand it. Well, okay, could God not create me in hell with the understanding of how I ended up there without me having to go through all the work? <laughs> why, 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 why do this thing with hell in the first place? Why create people? What, what was God missing from his perfection, which is already a conundrum? Yep. Uh, or a... Uh, 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 Paradox. Paradox. So if God's perfect, he's not missing anything. But clearly he, he, he had to be missing something in order to create people in the first place. As a matter of fact, that was one of the first questions in, in oh, crap, I shouldn't. There is a book that I'm working on. It's not, there's a lot going on. Uh, but, <laughs> but the first question is, why would God create anything in the first place? If, you're, if I'm God and I'm all, I know everything. And you're perfect. And I'm perfect. I'm, then I'm not why missing anything. Why mess that up? Yeah. And so, oh, well, God just... <laughs> Loved people who didn't exist so much that he wanted to give them existence, even though he knows it's going to be hellish. 
and that a good chunk of them are going to spend in it. He created people knowing that they're going to spend an eternity in some variety of hell, even if it's annihilation. Oh, it's, look, it's this beautiful gift I give you. Well, send a fucking receipt next time because I'm sending it back. <laughs> Kelly in Iran, thanks for waiting. You're on with Don and Matt. Hi, 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 Dan. Hi, hi, Matt. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm sorry about my voice. Um, it's, it's a bit annoying. Oh, it's fine. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, I've, I've been looking into um, Matt's arguments against um, uh, the causal argument for God's existence. Okay. Um, and uh, first of all, before I, before I delve into that, the question that you raised just before um, answering my call, why would God create anything? Um, it's a very interesting question. And I, and I think I can offer an answer, at least from the Muslim perspective. If you don't mind, sure. Um, I mean, here's the thing. At least in the in the in the version of Islam that I believe in, um, which is basically Shiism, um, it's that God. I, I mean, even even the Christian perspective on God—that is, uh, He loves people. God doesn't love. He doesn't have emotions. He doesn't have feelings the way humans do. And that that definition of God really troubles me. Um, God, God is perfect, sure, and the way I see it is, it's in His perfection that led Him to create people. Um, we call it emanation. It's when God emanates being into existence. Okay, um, so I'm curious as to how you know a God exists, how you know a God is perfect, and how perfection involves emanating beings. Okay, um, so basically. Um, the, the argument goes as follows. Um, first of all, because we see that um, everything around us exists, and you exist, and um, Dan exists, Don, sorry. Sorry. Um, um, that alone, based on the principle um, of sufficient reason, allows us to conclude that there has to be an explanation I, for I, why everything exists. I would agree in the sense that if we begin with the assumption that everything that's part of a causal chain has some cause that preceded it, that it is reasonable to conclude that any observation has some explanation, not necessarily uh, in the way that we might always think about it, you know, because sometimes what we want to ask is, well, why is it this way as opposed to another way? And the explanation is it couldn't have been any other way. But even, even using that, observing that people exist doesn't mean we're or getting to the point where we recognize there must be an explanation doesn't mean that that explanation is God. Oh, I, I mean, I see your point, but, but here's the, here's the thing. I mean, that entity, um, how do you know it's entity, an entity? I mean, I, I'm using entity. You're right. That's a very good question. I'm using entity as a placeholder for something that I don't know. Um, just for now. Okay. Is if okay? If we would agree that you don't know, then how can you possibly, Not yet. How can you believe that there's a God as, as the most likely probable explanation f that you don't have? I'm, I'm reaching that point. Okay. Um, basically, what I wanted to say is that entity, um, which is for now, let's agree that it's something I don't know. It's not even a, a something. Um, that entity has to have been one entity. Um, at least we can agree on the fact that it's one. No. Uh, why not? Because... If somebody, if somebody said, what's the explanation for the Atheist Experience TV show? And somebody could argue that, uh, that it's me. They'd be wrong. 
There's a ton of people that are involved with it. There's people on the other side of the wall. There's a long history to this. It wasn't just a single person. Now, we may get back to a point where there was one person in a discussion who said, hey, let's do a TV show. It was, you know, but my, my understanding is that for this, it was Joe Zemecki and Don Rhodes and some others talking about it. Um, but it would be wrong to just assume that it's one thing. Just like when a fire starts, there's a fire triangle, which involves uh, heat, oxygen, and fuel. It's not just one thing that that is contributing causally to fire. It necessarily is three things. So if there's something that we don't know what the explanation is, I don't know what justification you could ever have for claiming it's necessarily one thing. Because, okay, okay, that's a very interesting thing regarding the fire, um, that it requires three things. Um, because here's, here's where I'm coming from. I see things that um, two causes can never result in the exact same thing in the exact same way. Do we agree on that or? No. Um, well, well, it depends on what you mean by exact same thing. For example, going back to, so first, first of all, the fire, I still think that's a, a roadblock to what you just said. But if I roll a die it, and it comes up a four and I roll a die again and it comes up a four, you could say, ah, well, if we really look down and get, you know, kind of reductive on this, you know, these things happened at different times. And so everything about the physical universe was slightly different, et cetera. But the, the truth, the, the resolution at which we can reasonably define what happens to a die when you roll it is about the shape of the die, the surface that it's hitting, the physics. And yeah, it doesn't necessarily hit the same spot. But if you look at the result of it rolled a four, that can, that can arise from a multitude of different individual actions, right? Of course, but but my point is that there's only one hand throwing the die. How do you know? I can throw it with two hands. That's exactly what I'm. What I don't. And the table can have various. Don and I can hold onto the die together and let go at the same time. Now there's two of us dropping the die, and it requires both of us to let go in order for that die to drop. But it requires only one person for it to drop. No, if if I'm holding on to the to to the two and five, and Don's holding on to the six and one, and I let go, that dice doesn't drop because Don's still holding exactly. it. And if Don lets go exactly. and I don't, the die doesn't. What do you mean exactly? I'm I'm literally showing you that here's something that would require two individual agents to act in order for this to happen, and you're saying exactly it's yeah, one person. I agree. I agree. I, agree. Uh, I mean that point is completely fair. My point is that you can't hold the die in a sense, uh, and this on 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 two ends of it. Yes, you can. Um, what the? F- I can do it with the phone. Look, this th- there's this side, there's this side, which is a little long for me. Then there's this way, and if I hold here and Don holds, grab, yeah, like, well, no, no, not the same ones. Yeah, like opposite. Now, when I let go, the phone doesn't fall, and if Don lets go, the phone doesn't fall. You can do the same thing. This is, it's yes, magic. this is an elongated <laughs> cube, essentially. Or, I, I, these are really bad magic tricks, Matt. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, they're the worst. But I'll show you a better one later. Okay. All right. So, what do you mean you can't hold a die by the ends? When we, when I can demonstrate to you that we can. If I had a die here, I'd show you with a die, but I was hoping that my phone, which is a good approximation of a die, would be sufficient. I hope she she can see us, but. Hey. Hey, sorry. Um, no, sadly, I can't see you. Oh, my apologies. Uh, It's okay. Um, can I give another example? Because I think that one would be fair. Okay. Um, basically, for example, if you're shooting a, a bullet at a window, um, if you're shooting, let's say, two guns, okay, and, both bullets hit the window at the same exact time, the window will break. So you can say, sure, that the bullets, both of them caused the window to break. 
But the problem arises when we when we think that there's no problem. It's just the fact that the two bullets have to exist in two different positions relative to the window. Yes, and they couldn't, and they and they break the window in two different locations. Sure, but they don't break it in the exact same way. That's what that's why I just said they break it in two different locations. Exactly. So they don't break it in the same way. So they what? Break it together, sure. So what? So, you don't. You, I don't even know why you came so up with an example of two bullets. See, this is like this is like the guy who tried to point to the things that were good in the Bible as a way of avoiding talking about the things that are bad. I can shoot a single bullet at a window and it'll break a window. I don't need exactly. two two for that. Exactly. So why would you come up with an example that doesn't require two, as if it's a refutation of an example that does require two? Because this is the case where this is what how the universe must have came about in this. Uh, how did? Whoa, 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 whoa. It's a big leap. How do you know how the universe must have come about? Because we're still working on that. I mean, because here's the thing. The universe is a fact, isn't it? There is a universe. You, you and I are in agreement that the universe exists. And I, and I really hope we agree on that. Do we, do we agree that we don't know how or why the universe exists? Uh, of course. Then why did you just pretend to know how or why the universe exists? If we don't know how or why the universe exists, you can't claim that the universe must have come from a single thing. Because of the fact that the universe couldn't have come into existence. That's not a fact. That's an assertion by you. You just acknowledge that we don't know how or why, and now you're going on to make claims about what you know about the origin of the universe. I, I, I can start to see your point. Um, this is one of those things where it's it's our intuitions and our frustration with not knowing where we, we look at this and we go, oh, well, of course, if the universe had a beginning, it must be something like this. And yet we also have to acknowledge that we don't know that, that we can't explore that, that we don't currently have evidence for it. The best thing we have is sort of uh, currently we have the modern Big Bang cosmology, but that doesn't explain the how or why. It's more of an explanation of what. And right now we can't even get back beyond the Planck time. And there are whole realms of physics that defy intuition and our armchair understanding. Yeah, but I think world. those are magical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am a big fan of falsifiability and demonstration, and, and the fact that you have a model that can make reasonable predictions is neat. But it reminds me of, uh, of essentially like Newtonian physics, which it works well in the context in which it works, uh, and yet it but, does not accurately describe what's going on at the universe at another resolution. Exactly, yeah. And so until we're um, able to investigate and explore the universe at the particular resolution that we want to provide an explanation— it would be a mistake for us to make any kind of claim about what the nature of that explanation might be. For example, the origin of the universe, it could be the Abrahamic God. It could be the God of some other religion. It could be some sort of multiverse thing. It could be universe creating pixies. Uh, it could be, and, and I'm not saying it, let me, let me correct this. I'm not saying those are actual epistemic possibilities. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I'm saying that I know. Th those are things that we cannot rule out. And so if I have a 20 things that I can't rule out, and potentially an infinite pool of things that I know nothing about. Not only can I not say that the answer must be one of the 20 things that I can't rule out, but I can't, since I can't rule out this, the things that I don't know, it would be a mistake for me to say that it must be one of these 20. That's, that's the, that's the arrogance that we do. This is why the, the argument from ignorance, which is I'm right until you prove me wrong. And the argument from personal incredulity, which is I'm going to stick with this explanation because I can't think of anything better are both more about us and our failure to recognize the limits of our understanding and our discomfort with saying, I don't know. And so when somebody says, ask me, what's your explanation for the origin of the universe? I don't have one. Well, doesn't that make you uncomfortable? Yeah, 
It really does. I'd love to know. But the difference is I'm not willing to pretend that I know, and I'm not willing to make claims about the nature of what the cause might be when I have to recognize that I don't know anything about the nature of what the cause might be. And how can you live with that? Because there's a lot of things we don't know, and there's a finite amount of time. Because I'd rather live being intellectually honest and open to explanations that are supported by evidence than to say, wow, I don't want to live in a world where I don't know where the universe originated, so I'm going to make something up. The comforting lie that we tell ourselves is not, you know, yes, people do that because they're, they're just comforting. But your question of how can you live with that, if you pretend that you have the answer, you stop looking for the answer, and you mire the world in ignorance forever. And while it may be a comforting, ignorant lie, it's still a comforting, ignorant lie. And if you stop with that comforting, ignorant lie and say, let's go out and see what we can discover, we may never be able to know what the true explanation of the origin of the universe is. But as soon as we put up that roadblock, it leads us to the temptation to start putting up other roadblocks to things that we might be able to know. When, when religions pretend to have the answers to things that humans don't know, some people are not satisfied with the comforting lie. And so they go out and explore, and they find out, you know what? The Earth isn't the center of our solar system or the universe. You know what? Lightning doesn't come from Thor, Odin, etc. Sorry, Ocean. Uh, all of these things that we'd want to know, anybody can come up with religion that says, ah, here's the explanation. Why do, why do some men like men? What's the explanation for that? Why are some people born intersex? Why do some people have gender uh, dysphoria and ideas like that? Why do some people have lighter skin and some people have darker skin? If we just say, went with what, with what religions have claimed, we would be poor. The, the world would be devoid of technology, of understanding, of, of the sort of inspiration that makes you go out and look for for, for answers. When you say, how can you live not knowing that? I don't know how anybody could live with, without realizing that they don't know it. Life is about this pursuit of finding out and understanding the world. And if you're willing to just take whatever comforting lie somebody offers you, I don't know that you're living. You're, you're existing. You're persisting. But without that sort of curiosity, without this drive to find out what the hell is actually going on, that would be the, that would be the life that would suck for me. But my perspective is that, first of all, thank you so much for that. Um, it really made me open my eye uh, on several things. I'm, I'm, I'm happy, happy, thank you. Yeah, um, but one of the things that I might disagree with slightly is the fact that living with a religion makes you so close-minded. I mean, one of the things um, you mentioned is gender dysphoria, and I myself have gender dysphoria, as you might have realized. Yeah. Um, it is, I mean... In Iran specifically, one of the main things they were against was um, admitting that um, gender dysphoria should be um, uh, treated and men should who feel that their women should be um, should be treated um, and vice versa. This was an issue in Iran and it wasn't solved um, and it wasn't uh, accepted until recently. But here's the thing, they accepted it. It was something that um, became, at the end of the day, something that's fine. But, so but, but to, 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 the extent, to the extent that somebody's yeah. accepted it, wasn't religion a roadblock to, to preventing this from being accepted much, much earlier? But, that's, but, but here's the thing. My perspective is that religion was the thing that 
that made people open-minded about it. It wasn't religion that was against it. I believe that the people were. And the religion helped the people open their eyes, in a sense, to realize that. Because in the Quran itself, it says, um, you should think. And at the end of the day, that was the thing that made people realize that it's, that it's not an issue. What does the Quran say about sexuality and gender? Is it supportive of homosexuality? Is it supportive? Homosexuality uh, is a different issue. It's not, sorry? It's not gender dysphoria. Homosexuality is not... Is I, not I know. I wasn't done. Okay. Um, when, it, when it talks about homosexuality, I don't think the Quran's in favor. But when we talk about, when we talk about transitioning from one gender identity and expression to another, I don't think the Quran's in favor of that either. It doesn't say anything about it, actually. Really? Well, yeah. I, I, I agree that it probably doesn't use those terms. but Exactly. It but you don't think it talks about the concepts at all? It talks about, I mean, here's the thing. Um, what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, what those roles are. Because, exactly. because, because if, if the Quran was actually okay with someone, a, uh, someone who was um, assigned female at birth, transitioning to a man to, to conform to their own understanding of their gender, then why on earth would, would we have um, different roles for men and women in the first place in different positions? If, if, if you say men can do this and women can do this, and then someone who was assigned female at birth says, oh, I'm going to transition and, and be a man. Um, well, and, more, and have more rights. Now there's no, no reason yeah. to have those, the, those roles, you know, where, where men have rights and women don't. Uh, oh, I, I'm a, I, wanna, I'm a, I was assigned female at birth, but I'd like to drive a fucking car without having a male chaperone around me. So I'm going to transition to be a man. I, I understand that's not what the gender dysphoria is. But what I'm talking about from the model from the Quran, I think the concepts are there. That women are inferior, that they don't have the same rights as men. And so this notion of people, that's not what? That's definitely not the reason uh, I would transition to a man. I didn't, I didn't remotely say that that's why. I, okay, sorry. I mean, let, me, let me back this up because I, I, I'm not talking about the reason that you would. Okay. I'm saying if you have a religious structure that says... Every man gets uh, these rights and women don't. And yet we're okay with any one of you uh, identifying as either man or woman. That erases the need to have the distinction between the two of them. And I don't think that, that's that, that the notion of transitioning is consistent with the Quran. But that's, I mean, I, I don't get that point, honestly. Because, I mean, um, sure, it does talk about the different roles, um, but that's only... Or as a social structure, it was talking... It's all a social structure. Yeah, so it was only talking about that. It wasn't touching on um, the, the necessity of not having um, or not allowing transitioning. I mean, sure, the roles are there, and that's exactly why I am transitioning, because my inner self more agrees with that, those roles than other roles. So the roles are, are important, and they are there. I don't know if that goes against what you said, but I, I have to make that clear. Well, we may need to do more research on the Quran, but certainly uh, there, there's this idea in the United States of uh, from the Christian community that uh, you know God made you a certain way, and you know if you think you're you need to change, then then you you are wrong, and God is not wrong. There, there's no, certainly that, that idea. That's horrible. That's horrible. No, in fact, God made you a certain way, and you. Prove it. willing to change. Prove it. Um, shouldn't, what? Prove God made me anyway. 
hypothetically I mean, I speaking, tried. right? I, I, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on the Quran, so I'm not going to keep digging in on it. But I find I find it bizarre after having so many Muslim and ex-Muslim friends over the years that anyone could suggest that the Quran is in is in any position other than directly in opposition to the notion that someone can transition gender. This is a, this is a concept that would not even have, have existed or been broached at the time in in the way that we do it now. Exactly. That's why but, it has no say on it. Okay, that's absolutely ridiculous. Why? The, the default position is that it's permissible unless stated otherwise. And it's not stated otherwise. Unless someone brings out a verse and explains it in a certain way, then then that's a different story. Okay, so so here's a piece of advice. I wouldn't run around in most of the Muslim-led countries suggesting that the Quran is okay with people transitioning gender. I definitely wouldn't do that. But I mean, and why wouldn't you do it? <laughs> Would you fear for your life? No, because the version of Islam that they have is a horrible one. Oh, oh, oh. oh they just haven't it's found the, the right it's Islam. It's a true Islam problem, right? Well, that's okay. good. Yeah, that's, that's why there are different sects. <laughs> we know that one. Yeah, that's we get that from Christians all the time. So congratulations, you're all Christians. engaged in the same sort of confirmation bias batshittery. <clears throat> but but I, my, my point was that, um, that in Iran, I mean, it, it's widely understood. I mean, we study philosophy, we study ethics. And it's widely understood what the Quran is. It's just, it's just is example it? in Saudi Arabia. Well, what, what is you it? Know, Iran, Iran is an unusual country in the in the education level of of the the populace, and um, and the it doesn't have quite the religious stronghold that other like say Pakistan or 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 Saudi Arabia has as far as the the strength of the religion and and the power of the religion and such is is a bit different there. It, what, what what this conversation's turned into um so there's a, there's a ton of different Christian denominations and I'll I'll stick largely with what I know. Okay. Uh bunch of gay friendly churches mm-hmm. all over the place. There's one here in town we use on occasion for meeting place, crosses and rainbows all over. The Bible is directly in opposition to homosexuality. There's no... Of course. Okay. And and so the people who are suggesting that Christianity is compatible with homosexuality are inventing a heresy. Now, I think... I, I, I'm in agreement with them about, you know, homosexuality and rights and freedoms not, and stuff like but that. Their, their but path. they're inventing a heresy. And so there's no way for them to show that they have the right version of Christianity. And let's say some jackass like Stephen Anderson has the wrong version. And yet you're calling in to talk about Islam and to say that, oh, those other, those other versions are wrong. Well, how do you know yours is right? Because wouldn't it also make sense that you have picked or massaged a version of Islam to conform to what you want it to be? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't either. And until somebody gives me a way to know, I, I'm, I'm stuck looking at both of them saying, you know, it's, it's like, we'll go back to a die roll. Somebody rolled a die in a box and neither Don or I can see it. Don starts the religion that the die roll was a two and I start the religion that the die roll was a five and we are forever blocked from demonstrating which of us is actually correct and yet we will fight wars and kill people left and right because I'm convinced that Don is a fucking heretic. How dare you think a two could come up? A two, by the way, is always on the opposite side of a five on a correctly standard six-sided die. So you're, you are on the satanic. See, this is the, this, this is, is the way this works. works. And so to outsiders, we need some way to know how, how one comes about understanding that their version is correct. And it, it all gets back to the foundations that we were talking about earlier. 
where I have no evidence that a God exists. I have no evidence that a God participated in, in either the uh, beginnings of the universe, the beginnings of, of the Old Testament, the beginnings of the Quran, any of these things. So quite frankly, I don't give a crap what any of the books say. None of them are authoritative or instructive for me. And when people point to them and say, oh, well, this part of the book is not nearly as bad as the other parts of the book. Uh, I mean, we did that earlier with a Christian. So you're basically saying, hey, the Quran doesn't actually speak about trans issues. And since it's not expressly prohibited, then Islam must, in fact, be in favor of transitioning. And yet I bet, I bet if you were to go back in time and around the origins of Islam, around the time the Quran was written, and try to explain the concept of transitioning gender. I think that it would be prohibited based on everything else that's in there. It's just that they didn't have an understanding of this to actually prohibit it. Yeah, it's almost like the there's no real mention of lesbianism in the Bible because I don't think I don't think any of the men who wrote it had a had a clue that that existed. <laughs> you know, it's like you know what else isn't in the Quran? Prohibitions against um, manipulating DNA. Does that mean it's permissible? No. Yeah. <laughs> now, look, I, I, want, I want to backtrack a minute, Kelly, if I can, because okay. I know that you are in a particularly difficult spot. And I, you know, when we're on the show, we're having these discussions, and the whole thing is, tell us what you believe and why, and we'll look into this, and, you know, is there evidence for this, and is this reasonable? And despite what some people think, my goal isn't necessarily to convince people that their belief is wrong as much as it is to point out why I don't share their beliefs, why it's not convincing for me or us. You are in a, yeah. in a, in a much more difficult spot um, as a transgender person, as a, a Muslim. You're trying to find your way through all this, and exactly. I, want you, I want you to know that uh, irrespective of what you believe about a god or Islam or anything else— you are a valued human being with rights, and we are fully supportive of your transition process and who you are as a person, even if you wind up inventing a version of Scientology that is fine with who you are. My concern at, at the outset of this was when we were talking about, you know, causality and origins and stuff. I just have questions, and I love the fact that one of, one of your questions that I spent the most time on was, you know, how can you live n not knowing? Um, that's the thing that most of us are uncomfortable with. And I hope, no matter what your view on religion is, I hope you find a way to safely and happily live your life as the person who you are. And one of the things that is incredibly liberating about not accepting religious claims that don't have evidence behind them is that I'm not in any way bound to them. I, I'm not beholden to anybody's antiquated ideas about gender. I'm able to actually explore things and, and come to new understandings of those in the same way that I can explore the universe. I mean, granted, I I can't go explore the universe. I'm not. Well, I'm not yeah, a assuming astrophysicist a limited frail, or an or limited human yeah. capabilities. Yeah, yeah, but we are we we are completely in your camp with respect to your life and who you are and what your rights should be and and how you should be allowed to live your life uh, to the fullest as the person that you are. That's really secondary that. to the God thing. So just because I'm, I'm up here in debate mode going, well, that's bullshit and that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. What about this? What about this? I don't want that to be taken as anything other than, than an academic exercise, which is actually, no, no, don't for worry. me, that academic exercise, despite the fact that's what we do, it is of secondary importance. I'm a humanist. Uh, I know. I'm a skeptic and I'm an atheist. And of those three, atheist is the least important part because if there's ever evidence for God, that's the part that goes away. But the skepticism and the humanism don't. That's very inspiring, actually. 
Well, hopefully we've helped a bit. I'm going to try to get on to some other calls, but call us back and, and you know, let us know what's going on. Uh, and if you come up with more questions, whether they be academic exercises on causal arguments, or maybe you find something in the Quran that is is more supportive of that. At the end of the day, though, even if there was a surah that said, um, uh, irrespective of the gender assigned to you at birth, all people are free to transition, identify, and and express uh, gender in whatever way they want because gender is just a, a bunch of BS, at least uh, in the societal context. I mean, nobody's denying that there's not genetic differences between, you know, individuals, but there's probably as many genetic differences between Don and myself as there is uh, between, you know, myself and you or myself and uh, a cis woman yeah. or whatever else. Yeah, yeah. We kind of did the, did the same thing. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go down another sidetrack, but it, it it I get that you think that the one thing you said that bugs me a little bit is that you think you thought that religion made people open minded about this stuff, and the reason that sticks with me is the sum total of my entire life's experience, including all of these years talking with people who have different religious beliefs, is I'm not aware of any religion um, with any sort of significant adherence that encourages open-mindedness. Some of them play lip service to it, and then they set up protective barriers. So like, you know, Christianity has verses about thou shalt not, or you shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test. You know, God, this is how we get to God works in mysterious ways within Christianity uh, and why prayer tests fail. But my commandment is put everything to the test. Question everything question every answer, every authority. Don't sit there and, you know, it's not like you're mired in questions all the time. It is exercise reasonable doubt and try to make sure that you're not convinced of anything until there's really strong evidential warrant for it. Yeah. And, and that is that is what open-mindedness is, not thou shalt not. That's not open-minded. Um, you have to live no. this sort of way. You have to pray five times a day. You have to, you know, face Mecca. You have to, you know, wear... Uh, naquab or hijab or what, whatever else, you know, these sorts of things you can't be out, you know, these, these sort of legalistic prescriptivist instructions don't ever seem to me to come from a mind that is either open or encouraging an open mind. And I find it fascinating, curious. I'd love to, I mean, send us an email because I'd love to hear more about why you're convinced that it makes people open-minded. I mean, um, honestly, the, the thought experiment that you gave me made me kind of doubt that. Well, cool. Um, I, I'm, I'm, when you when you told me about um, if I went back in time and told um, Muhammad, uh, yeah, sorry, I was gonna, um, that um, like I described my situation. Yeah, I'm I'm starting to doubt, to doubt that honestly. And, and Islam being significantly newer, you know, I, I've talked to Christians before and pointed out if you grabbed ten Christians from today that are in different denominations that agree and disagree on different things. And you took all 10 of them back 150 years and introduced them to 10 different Christians from their denominations, if those denominations existed. They wouldn't recognize each other and they wouldn't agree. They wouldn't agree on morality. You know, you look back to the 60s when when women were wearing miniskirts and people are like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. And, and of course, each year the world is supposedly gets worse and worse and worse. And yet... The stuff I see people wearing into church now would not have been acceptable when I was going to church as a, as a teenager for people to walk in wearing church. And it's because, hey, wait, the Bible doesn't say anything about what you should wear. Well, actually, 
Yes, it does. You're not supposed to wear mixed fabrics, and you're you're also supposed to uh, dress humbly, and you're not supposed to put makeup on, and all these other things that are in there. And yet, Christianity has conveniently ignored those, and it's moved yeah. forward and is more accepting of some things. But it's not the religion that is making them open-minded. It is the yeah, influence right. of the outside world that says, no, you don't get to tell us what to do anymore. And that seeps yeah. in, and it corrupts Christianity. It's the reason that all religions are going to die. <laughs> Wow. Long, slow, painful death. It's going to take a long while. <laughs> I mean, I've got pretty good job security here, I think, yeah. uh, even though this not isn't a good job. our lifetimes, man. <laughs> anyway, Kelly, I, I really appreciate the call. And, and by all means, email us, keep in touch, let us know how you're doing and, and you know, where you come out on this stuff. And if you find better arguments, we'd love to hear them. Okay, okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Before Bye-bye. we go to the next caller, yeah. um, I just finished reading a book called Sapiens, which is kind of a... a 20,000-foot view of the history of humanity. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. One of the points that's made in the book is around uh, the 1300s, 1400s, instead of making up shit on a map for the stuff they didn't know, they actually started saying, we don't know this little thing over here. And the map started, you know, Saying, "Hey, this is Terra Incognita. This we don't know. This it went from there. There be monsters, right? Or to or we're going to make something up. Or, yeah, no, it's perfect. Exactly. Yeah, and and that really uh, the point in the book was that that really drove an exploration. Let's go fill in that map. What's but what there? if you sail off the edge of the flat Earth? Yeah. <gasps> oh no. Okay. So we're getting you know, low on that, time, right? That's what happened. It's, yeah. it's, uh, the Bermuda Triangle where all those planes and everything in the boats supposed to go missing, uh, which, by the way, this is a joke. Uh, there's nothing to this. There's no Bermuda Triangle. Uh, <laughs> there's not a Bermuda Rectangle, Parallelogram, That anything. one's kind of fallen out of favor. But, it, you know, it's basically you can make the argument that really what's happening is that uh, those planes went through a vortex and then disappeared over the edge of the flatter. Oh, I thought they were having Mai Tais on the beach. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> or, or drinking rum, at least. You know. We are we are ten minutes past when the show is going to end, and there are still like four callers to get to. So uh, I I need to I have five minutes left, and I don't want to. Uh, yeah, before we actually have to wrap it up, I don't want to be rude to any of these calls by saying, "Okay, you've got one minute to explain to me what we got." So here's what we're going to do. Uh, it's currently ten after six. If you're on the phone, stay on the phone. Um, but we're at the Atheist Community of Austin's Free Thought Library. There's a bunch of people on the other side of the glass, and there's people out back. And I believe, has food arrived? I'm smelling. Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm smelling things. <laughs> I see people nodding like, it yeah. ice cream. Yeah. Ice cream. Yeah. Speed it the fuck up because there's ice cream that's going to melt and food. So I'm going to let all the people here at the building uh, head off and start eating. I'm going to stay here and do an after show thing where I try to get to all. These four, if you guys stay on the line, I will try to get to all of you. But I want to say thank you to everybody for tuning in today. Thank you, Don, for coming in and presenting another failure, participating. The people out there who are eager for their ice cream. The folks on the other side of that wall right there, uh, our crew, who are the ones that make all this show happen. They're awesome. Special thank you to uh, patrons and donors and members. And don't forget about the back crews. We're just just over one month away. And uh, despite the fact that we... We will probably only have the one boat, and we were going to expand it too, but I think we're probably only going to have one boat, so there's not going to be as many tickets as we thought there were, and we're like halfway there. So atheist-community.org, you can go there to get information and uh, click a link there to buy tickets to the back cruise. 
Dave Warnock will definitely be here. There may be other speakers as well. We may have a, a variety of things going on that day. We're still fleshing out. But if you saw Dave on here a couple of weeks ago and uh, have visited uh, his site and seen more talks from him. Uh, it was last a, week, wasn't it? About, yeah, about, about dying out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm looking forward to both the talk and the back crews, not just for the people who will be there, but because we'll have the chance to have Dave back. Talk a little bit more about his story and what's going on in his life. And then we're going to have him sit on the show on Sunday after the back cruise and uh, take calls again because that was uh, that, that was important and and it was it, it impressed on me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And so we're really looking forward to have Dave back. Uh, with that, I don't have any other announcements. Okay, let's end the show. Thanks. See you next week. <laughs>